Well, this is week five, although we missed the last two weeks. We had missionaries in both cases. Uh, So we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, This, of course, uh, we may need to be reminded it's a class on the Great Awakening in America in the 18th century. And actually, starting next week, we'll be in England a little bit as well. So we're looking at it primarily in America, but... uh, We'll be going to Whitfield and the Wesleys for a few weeks in the, in the coming weeks. So, just in the way of looking ahead. This morning, we're going to come to what Isaac Watts was referring to in our very first week. Uh, if you remember from the first handout, I had a lengthy quote from the faithful narrative of the surprising work of God that... Jonathan Edwards wrote. Well, we're coming to that episode this morning. So, uh, really, it, it's a little uncomfortable trying to crunch it into one week because it's a great, it's, it's, it's a great uh, oh, I don't know, about a nine-month period or so in Northampton and the surrounding community where uh, the Spirit was extraordinarily working in the conversion of, of many in that congregation, uh, which we just just were introduced to at the end of last time's, that's three weeks ago, last time's class. Uh, In the the handout, you'll see the second quote there, the first by John Owen, if you skip down to that to the second, that is uh, an excerpt from the faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. Uh, If I was assigning, if I was giving homework assignments, that would be your assignment, to read that, to go home and, and, and read that uh, sometime this week, the, the faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. Has anyone actually read it before? Okay, well, the fruit is ripe for the picking. It's, it's fantastic. You will love it, I think. I think that you will love it like, like I have loved it. It's a very famous work, and uh, like I said, we quoted from Isaac Watts's preface of this work, uh, in our first week, the second, the, the third, the third quote there is from Edward's sermon, "A Divine and Supernatural Light," from the year 1733, and that's kind of a facsimile of one of the pages from his sermon there, off to the right of it. That's his handwriting there and his scribbling and so forth. Uh, that's all I have to say about the handout. I did want to mention those couple of things about it. Now. Uh, this morning we're going to look at this surprising work of God in Northampton by way of three of Edwards' sermons, an excerpt of each of which I have in the handout. So you have, you can see those last three quotes are from three different sermons in consecutive years. So that's really the device we're using to work through this morning. And hopefully we can get through it all. There's a lot. We're getting kind of a late start. So I, I'm, I'm, if I talk a little faster than usual... Uh, let me know if you can't understand me. Hopefully that won't be a problem. But let's start with a few verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which, which really captures a lot of what Edwards was asserting in the first sermon, a divine and supernatural light. I want to read just, uh, oh, I don't know, three, four verses out of 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 9. 
As it is written, eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, in this hour, as, as we behold men, yes, certainly, no doubt, but what we really pine for and thirst after and hunger for, and that is... Uh, your mighty hand and your very face, as it were, uh, coming down and working among us. Be gracious to us, and especially we always have in mind the preaching of your word that comes in the following hour, that you might prepare our hearts for that, to meekly submit to your word as we understand it, as you give us light by your spirit. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our son and our shield and our entire sufficiency and righteousness. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so last time, just to catch up a little bit, uh, Edwards, we were introduced to Jonathan Edwards and uh, went through his early years. We won't rehash any of that, although I would love to because it's just a great subject. Uh, we got to his conversion at just around 17 years old after a, a, a fairly prolonged struggle uh, until he came to that new sense, as he said, that new sense of the divine being, the glory of the divine being. And then uh, just a few years after that, in 1727, he had been born in 1703, so 1727, he would have been three going on four years, or I'm sorry, um, 23 going on 24 years old. He was installed as the assistant pastor at Northampton under his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who was uh, approaching his 60th year in ministry there at Northampton. Uh, incredible career behind the pulpit there for Solomon Stoddard. For the next two or three years, Solomon Stoddard died in 1729, so Edwards now assumed uh, the sole uh, role of pastor of the church at Northampton. Uh, upwards of 1,300 communicant members, uh, many of which had been admitted without any, any evident experience of grace. They were not required to, to convey that to become members. Uh, simply an adherence to the basic doctrines and a life void of scandal was the only requirement, which certainly is, is a necessary requirement. But uh, in terms of any kind of personal experience uh, of, of vital piety or of evangelical faith, that was not required, and therefore the pews were filled up very easily. Uh, the next two or three years, Edward said, if you remember, was a time of extraordinary dullness. There was just a lot of, there were carnal minds in the congregation to whom Edwards was preaching. And uh, he, was, he himself was bogged down by that, but he went to work immediately. So that was the case as we're leading up to this awakening. Not, not properly speaking, the Great Awakening yet. We're in the years like 1730, uh, coming up to 1733, 1734, 1735. 
if you, if you study uh, the Great Awakening in its, in it, in its uh, proper dates, you're going to be looking at 1730, starting at 1739 and 40, basically when uh, George Whitfield came to America. In 1739 is is when most historians date the beginning of the Great Awakening. So this is kind of like a pre-Great Awakening. I would love to mention, although this would take half of the class, what was going on uh, in spite of the fact that there was an extraordinary dullness in Northampton and in New England generally, vital piety was at a very low ebb at this point. in New Jersey, that was not the case. You remember Theodore Freelinghausen was there in Raritan. You remember Gilbert Tennant was in New Brunswick. Gilbert Tennant had two younger brothers, John and William Jr., who entered the ministry and began to pastor uh, the work of pastoring churches in uh, New Jersey also, not very far from their older brother. Uh, the work of God was going on apace at this time. So in the year, just in the years we're talking about, when Edward specifically calls an extraordinary dullness in religion uh, from basically 1729 to about 1733, right during that time was when there was actually a remarkable work of God going on in New Jersey through the ministry of Freelinghausen and the tenants. We're not even going to get into that, uh, but there's, there's material on that if you're interested in looking into it. Uh, it's, it's very painful to just skip over it, but we're going to. Toward the end of the year, 1733, uh, Edwards writes this. There appeared a very unusual, flexible... Uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, there appeared a very unusual flexibleness and yielding to advice in our young people, uh, primarily in reference to the sermons he was preaching. Uh, the young people who were kind of obstinate and, and the way young people often can be uh, were not they were acting and thinking contrary and uh, it had actually become something of an issue in the church with the young people uh, but at this time he says this unusual flexibleness uh, began to appear in them and there were more he says who manifested a religious concern than there used to be well this is this kind of turn of events is closely associated with, uh, among others, one particular sermon that he preached at the time on a subject which he himself admitted was very unfashionable and out of mode in the kind of rationalistic age in which they were living. Uh, this was a divine and supernatural light. The, the, the full title is a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. Well, this, runs, this was running counter to the basic religious mentality uh, and the carnal way of thinking uh, that was implicit in his congregation at this time. Uh, immediately imparted, a divine and supernatural light. I mean, think about that. Uh, Im- immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. That sounds a bit mystical. They thought so. Uh, but Edwards was firm on this. And this is one of his great sermons. Uh, it's not too hard to follow. That, that really captures the whole spirit of Edwards' ministry as a whole, even though this was early in his career. It's a wonderful sermon to read if you just want to get kind of feel like you're getting into the atmosphere of the mind and heart of Jonathan Edwards. It very well encapsulates the way he thought his whole life long. This was the first of three sermons that he specifically associates in his writings with this awakening of 1734 and 35. 
Uh, now, I, I say that because it's important to keep the connection between the two things, the preaching of the Word of God on the one hand and the work of the Spirit on the other. Uh, it was a surprising work. That's what he called it. It, it. it seemed, as it were, to come out of nowhere, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It came through the faithful uh, exposition and application of the Word of God. So it, seemed, it, was, it, it was surprising, but it was not arbitrary. And these kind of works never are entirely arbitrary. Certainly they spring from the will of God. There's no question about that, which we can never command. Uh, but it's preaching. The preaching of the Word of God and the descending power of God always go together. So we want to keep that in mind, not just this morning, but, but as we study the entire awakening. Uh, you can Just to think of an example, you can think of uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Uh, where Luke writes, when they heard this, when they heard this sermon, they were pricked in their hearts. You see there, there's a good, concise example of hearing the word of God and being pricked in the heart. But that's that's the work of the Spirit uh, upon the word of God as it's being preached. Or Paul's statement, which is also uh, in those early chapters of 1 Corinthians, very close to what we read this morning, the preaching of the cross, says Paul, is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. I mean, there you have it explicitly stated, the preaching of the cross. It, 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 to the world, it's foolishness. But to those of us who are saved, who actually come to believe, it's the power of God. Not because we get saved and then we realize it's powerful. That certainly is true. But it's called the power of God because it actually saves us. It, it is, as it were, Christ standing outside the tomb of Lazarus saying, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus. There's a power that the Spirit carries the word with, that quickens us. This is why we believe. It is the explicit reason why we ever come to have faith. And that's the great, actually in some ways, the great subject of this morning's lesson as we work our way through these sermons. The text of this first sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, was Matthew 16, 17. This was the text Edwards took. Blessed art thou... This is Christ speaking. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Edwards begins this sermon by asserting that the natural mind by itself cannot apprehend the spiritual glory of God in Christ. Cannot do it. And if you can't, if you can't do it, uh, it, coming from your natural mind, if you can't, if you can't, perceive or apprehend the spiritual glory of God in Jesus Christ, then you don't have a proper object for your faith. You, you can't believe. Faith ha- saving faith ha- must have an object. And that object must be revealed inwardly to the soul by the Spirit of God. That's, that's Edwards' basic thesis on the negative end of it. There's an inability, naturally speaking. So, he says, coming to the positive side, something above nature must be wrought in the soul. And this is the exclusive work of the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God who brings this about. No other. He must. That is, the Spirit of God must. And and here he's very similar to the language in the shorter catechism on the question, what is effectual calling? Uh, The Spirit must enlighten the mind in the knowledge of Christ. The Spirit must alone must renew the will. The renewing of the will is something that is a divine work. A man just doesn't decide, I'm going to renew my will now and begin to love God, whereas I didn't love him before. It's humanly impossible. Uh, 
So it is a spiritual work. And this is the catch here. Uh, that work, Edwards was asserting, is an omnipotent and a, so- and a, and a sovereign work. He does, the Spirit just does not do this work and leave the man to himself to kind of calculate and decide what he's going to do. The Spirit, as it were, comes and arrests the man and, and fills him with a sense of the spiritual glory of God in Christ. That um, you could use the word irresistible here. That he irresistibly begins to love and to trust God. This is the work of the Spirit of God. So a sovereign, omnipotent force is being exercised with this divine and supernatural life. Now, this becomes very controversial. And, and Edwards intended it to be so to some point because he was attacking the Arminianism that was beginning to creep into New England. Now, what does Arminianism have to do with this? Well, the Arminian doctrine of free will, and, and this, I mean, as soon as I say that, the doctrine of free will, it opens up it opens up volumes and volumes that have been written on this subject. The Arminian doctrine of free will, I'll, I'll just, um, just kind of cut to the chase in terms of the effect of it, not all of the philosophical argumentation. The Arminian doctrine of free will does at least these two things. In the, it, in the negative side, it denies that such a sovereign, omnipotent exercise is a work of the Spirit. The Spirit does not work in a sovereign, irresistible way upon the souls of men. That was what they claimed, because the will is free. It's not going to be invaded by God in such a way that now uh, the soul is captive, as it were. Uh, That's what they meant by free, but they also meant something else by free, and that was that it was autonomous and independent. Uh, It alone achieved what Edwards was claiming only and alone the spirit accomplishes. So on the positive side, they were ascribing to the will exactly what Edwards was wanting to ascribe to the Holy Spirit. They were ascribing to the will such a power as to be of itself the efficient cause of faith. So I decide I'm going to have faith and I believe, whereas Edwards was saying that's impossible for a mortal fallen man to do this. The exercise of that will, Edwards was saying, the exercise of that will is inseparable from its nature. Certainly, we all choose according to our will. That's that's not what is at issue. The will itself, the property of the will, is to choose. It's a faculty of choice. That's what we do. So if that's all. If that's all we mean when we say free will, that's well and good because we all freely choose. But what Edwards was saying is, we choose freely according to our nature. It's limited by what our nature is. We can't choose something outside of our nature. Uh, a turtle can't choose to fly because God didn't make him to fly. Well, God did make us to love him, but because of the fall, everything changed. And so we're dealing not with a nature as it came fresh, as it were, from the hands of God. We're dealing with a nature that is is fallen. And you could say crippled, you could say entirely dead and needs to be risen from the dead or raised from the dead, rather. So Edwards was saying the exercise of the will that the Arminians say is free says fine and good, but... It's inseparable from its nature, and that nature is ruined and fallen. Fallen, the man's mind is darkened, his corruptions are, are or his affections are corrupt, and and he's drawing from biblical language here: corrupt affections, a darkened mind, the carnal mind is enmity against God, and so he simply cannot believe. You, how, how can you believe lovingly in a savior that that you have a natural enmity toward? You may not recognize that uh, that enmity. Uh, that's one of the reasons that God gave the law 
was to draw that enmity, like the venom from a serpent, out of the wound. Well, the divine and supernatural light, Edward says, on the other hand, completely in contradiction to the Arminian doctrine of free will, the divine and supernatural light, says Edwards, effectually influences the inclination. It reaches the bottom of the heart and changes the nature of the soul. It changes it into an image of the same glory that is beheld. And so it turns the heart to God as the fountain of good to choose him for the only portion. Well, there's the action. You see all these verbs preceding the choice uh, and their divine acts. But then he comes to all of these things result in the man choosing God for his only portion. This light and this only will bring the soul to a saving close with Christ and dispose it to give itself entirely to him. Well, this is... If you recall at all the language of the canons of Dort, uh, this is almost a photocopy of the language of the canons of Dort on this subject of regeneration. So, coming back to the Arminian case, what you have in the preaching of the gospel is the gospel is preached, uh, and then the soul is left to itself in the matter of saving faith. That's, that's it. The gospel is preached, period. And now the soul is left to itself, to its own devices, as it were. God delivers the gospel offer to the doorstep and then waits on the outside of the door uh, for it to open from the inside. That's, that's the limits. God goes that far and he stops at the door and waits now for it to open from the inside. You, you, you've all seen the famous picture uh, of, of Jesus standing uh, outside the door there waiting for it to be opened from the inside. There, there's a small sense in which you could say, well, that's correct. We don't want to deny that picture altogether, but it's fundamentally incorrect in what the Holy Spirit actually does, what Christ himself does. When we say what the Holy Spirit does, we, we, we can't think of that as if Christ is doing nothing. No, it is Christ himself bringing in all those that the Father gave him by the Spirit. He himself now, Jesus, is a quickening spirit in heaven. He, he and the Holy Spirit are so one that when we speak about the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we are speaking of the work of Christ. Don't, don't ever put so much separation between the two that you're thinking of them as, as two different individuals with different wills. It's one will, it's the divine will. Well, so that's the Arminian case. There he is waiting on the outside. But, but very explicitly, Dort and Edwards are completely contrary to that. Yes, the gospel offer sounds externally in the ear. But then with it, the Spirit invincibly penetrates those inner chambers. As Edward says, reaching the bottom of the heart, changing the soul, turning the heart to choose God for the only portion. And so every Christian, in principle, every Christian is a new creature with entirely new faculties. So now they can apprehend that spiritual glory of God in Christ and believe from the heart and be transformed into that image that they're actually beholding. Well, that was the sermon, a very short, uh, very short summation of it. I, I hardly recommend its reading to you. But the sermon was over. Uh, in the months that followed, Edward says there was a manifest increase of religious concern among the people, uh, some of who now began openly to inquire into the way of salvation. Well, during this time, as if we haven't talked about Arminianism enough, uh, there began, says Edwards, and this would have been towards the, the middle and the end of the year 1734, 
Edward says, there began at this time to be the great noise in this part of the country about Arminianism. Now, in this case, he was speaking specifically about the case of Robert Breck, who was a young ministerial candidate for uh, the pulpit in Springfield, which was only about 20 miles away from Northampton in Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts. So uh, the men in the ministry were debating whether or not they should allow Robert Breck into the ministry. Well, why were they debating this over Robert Breck? Well, Breck had been openly questioning whether God would actually hold responsible, hold men responsible for not being able to do things that God commanded, but they didn't have the ability to do. Uh, if they couldn't keep the commands, how could God hold them responsible? Well, this is very Pelagian. And the, the direction is strongly in the Pelagian bent that, well... Um, if we ought to do it, we can do it. That was Pelagius's view, his ancient view. And it's a very common view today. It's not an evangelical one. The evangelical one would be, on the other hand, Augustine's retort to Pelagius saying, if we ought, we can. Uh, Augustine saying, no, no, no. God commands what we cannot perform in order that we may know what we ought to ask of him, which is, is a wonderful statement. He commands what he knows we cannot perform. So that we might know to come to the throne of grace to ask for those things that we need for eternal life. Well, Breck wasn't just bringing this up. He was also wondering if, after all, men might not be saved. If we can't, if we can't fulfill the commandments, God won't hold us responsible. Uh, and maybe, maybe men can even be saved if they just lead a sincere life of virtue. They basically live up to the light that they have. We, we hear this often times as well. It's nothing new. Robert Breck was, was broaching these opinions at this time in 1734. Well, Edwards was not even slightly flexible on this point. Not even slightly flexible. Uh, it wasn't just diluting the gospel. As far as Edwards was concerned, it was no gospel at all. The whole notion of justification of faith was being undermined. Well, the Northampton congregation was not so inflexible as Edwards was on this point. They, they began talking about these things. Well, you know, it kind of makes sense. Um, and it certainly does to the carnal mind. There's no question about it. It makes eminent sense. Well, Edwards says the congregation at this time was put into an unusual ruffle. They were brought to doubt that way of acceptance with God, which from their infancy they had been taught to be the only way. In other words, they were being brought to abandon that prime article of faith by which the church stands or falls, which is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, and, and right here is where this wonderful quote in your handout comes uh, into play from John Owen, who a half century before in England uh, said this, and it totally, it totally characterizes the Northampton congregation at this time. This is what Owen says. Little did I think I should ever have lived in this world to find the minds of professors grown altogether indifferent as to the doctrine of God's eternal election, the sovereign efficacy of grace in the conversion of sinners, justification by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. But many are, as to all these things, grown to an indifferency. It's an old way of saying it, but we know what he means. They know not whether they are so or not. Uh, that's a sad state of affairs. That's a very sad state of affairs because it's the halfway house uh, 
into a denial of these doctrines. When you begin to just wonder, well, I don't, I don't say they're not true, but I'm not convinced of them. Uh, that, that is, that's a, that's a, a common road in which the great doctrines of the faith eventually uh, are just cast out of the congregation altogether. Well, this brings us to Edward's second crucial sermon. And I can tell already, there's no way we're even going to get to the third one this morning. So we will just have to pick this up uh, next week. Justification by faith alone. This is the second sermon that we want to look at. And this is a very, very long one. Uh, it's, it's, it's arduous. Um, but it's a great Great sermon. And Edwards, as I said, attributed much of the work that followed from uh, the effects of this sermon as he saw it and talked with people in his own congregation. It created quite a stir. Well, he, he says immediately when he proposed preaching on this subject from the pulpit, he said immediately uh, that he was opposed by some of the leading members in the congregation. It's a very similar situation to Theodore Freelinghausen. Remember when he began preaching... Uh, hard gospel truths, how many, many leading members in his, his congregation uh, really were at enmity with him and even went so far, if you remember, to lock him out of the doors of his own church because they didn't want to hear this kind of preaching anymore. Well, Edwards was reproached. He says, in fact, I was greatly reproached for meddling with controversy in the pulpit. That's the state of, affair, of affairs that it had come to that the doctrine of justification by faith to preach on it was considered meddling in controversy. I mean, imagine that. Well, that was the state of affairs. That was controversial to preach justification by faith. He said it was ridiculed by many. But, but just like Freelinghausen, he didn't retreat. He was dogmatic, very much so on this point. He was going to preach, and so he did. His text was Romans 4, 5. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So this is what Edwards says. And, and again, this is I, I'm not doing justice in any way to this sermon. I mean, I'm just trying to encapsulate it as best as I can. But there's, there's so many avenues that he goes down to complete the thoughts. It's, it's really, really great. But anyhow, he says, he says near the beginning, a believer's justification implies not only remission of sins, but also an admittance to a title to that glory which is the reward of righteousness. So he's immediately setting up two aspects of justification. There's the, the uh, remission of sins, utterly necessary, on, on the negative side of things, taking away something, that is the guilt before God, uh, which, which keeps us from coming into his favor and into his presence. But then there's a positive righteousness that, that must, must be rewarded for eternal life. That's the original law that God gave. And he's never, he has never voided out uh, that, that law, as it were. We must have that fullness of righteousness, which alone merits eternal life, says Edwards. Adam, and, and you can do this thought experiment, uh, Adam was not to have the reward merely on account of his being innocent, says Edwards. If so, he would have had that fixed upon him at once as soon as he was created. So there was Edwards, or Edwards, there was Adam in the garden, no sin whatsoever. Uh, God didn't translate him or give him eternal life immediately. There he was. God gave him a command. And that command implicitly was required to be obeyed for him to come into the promise. So that's Edward's point there. And it makes sense if we can think about that. 
But that's not what happened to, 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 to Adam. Rather, Adam was given a command and he was to be, report, to be rewarded for obedience to it, strictly on account of his active obedience. And so, now Edwards comes to the, the, the punch of the sermon, really. This is the reason he's saying all of this, because on that same account, Adam had to strictly obey and then gain the reward. He, we, as we know, uh, because we can read it and because we know it by our own experience, he failed miserably in that. He did not uh, actively obey. But this is what Edward says. On the same account, we have not eternal life merely as void of guilt, just, just not having guilt, because Adam didn't have it when he was innocent. Let me start that over then, because I keep interrupting myself, for which I apologize. And on the same account, we have not eternal life merely as void of guilt, which, which, we, have, which we have by the atonement of Christ, but on account of Christ's activeness in obedience. He acted that part for us, which the first Adam should have done. He, that is Christ, undertook to put himself under the law and both to obey and to suffer. And there he's, he's, he's bringing into play the active and the passive obedience of Christ, uh, which is all one obedience, but it's a way of distinguishing his death and suffering, uh, which is a part of his active obedience, but we tend technically to call it his passive obedience because he was receiving the penalty in order to remove our sin. So he was receiving in that sense when he was hanging on the cross. Uh, so we call it passive because of the receiving of that penalty. But it doesn't mean that he was not actively obeying and submitting to it. That's, it's important to understand the distinction, but how it's all one obedience. It's all obedience to what was required of him. Well, Edwards is intentionally treating here Christ's active obedience as opposed to his passive for a specific reason. You remember, um, perhaps you remember, uh, the dictum of Arminius. The ability to believe belongs to nature. The ability to believe belongs to nature. So this brings up a question, and it's a very, it's a, it's, it's a very relevant contemporary question. If men are able to believe, not by the power of God, um, in effectual calling, that is, if men are able to believe not by what Edwards has been saying, what Dort says, that men come to believe and have the ability to believe by the power of God himself in effectual calling. If that's not the case, if what Arminius says is true, and that men rather are able to believe by their mere regenerate nature, their, regen their unregenerate nature and their unregenerate will, if that's the case, then, then what, from the Arminian perspective, makes that ultimate difference between the saved and the damned? If it's not God that's making the difference, where is that difference coming from? Uh, that, that's what has to be answered. Uh, the Arminian's answer is not from the will of God from before the foundation of the world. That's election, and that's a rejectable doctrine as far as they're concerned. Not from the will of God before the foundation of the world. And then neither is it from the Spirit of God breathing upon the dead bones or, or circumcising. Again, we're using biblical language. Circumcising the uncircumcised heart. This is clearly a, a spiritual operation. It's a divine operation uh, upon the soul of man, biblically speaking. But for the Arminian, neither is it that. It's not, it's not the predestinating will of God. It's not the current work of the Spirit of God uh, that causes men to believe, but that native Godward motion uh, in the will of an unregenerate man. That ultimately, that is the fulcrum 
That's the ultimate cause that God has been waiting on, uh, even if he could have foreseen it, which they don't deny. He foresees it from all eternity. But that's the linchpin. That's the hinge, is that action of the unregenerate will, that native Godward motion. Well, this is the error that, that Edwards utterly reprobates. Salvation, he says, is not a reward for faith. And you see here, he's not speaking of works anymore. I mean, that's the Catholic understanding. You know, you go through the works of penance and so forth, and, and you gain this, this condign, congruent, condign merit. They make the distinction between the two. Uh, but it's these sacramental works that you're doing. Uh, and that's how, that's how you come into the favor of God. Well, the Protestants don't believe that. But, but the Protestant... That, that same fallen carnal way of thinking in the Protestant realm just took faith and did the same thing with it by saying that, that, that faith is actually the thing that I'm bartering with God for. I give him the faith, I dredge it up, um, I have that Godward motion of the, the will, and when God sees that, then he'll take it, I'll give it to him, and then he gives me eternal life for it. So there's an exchange going on, and anytime there's, there's an exchange like that, you're talking about, in principle, equals at some level. He may be greater than us, but, but there's an equality going on. Uh, we're not talking about the sovereign, omnipotent, eternal, infinite, unchanging God anymore when we're talking about an exchange going on like this. So Edwards, he despises this. He says, this scheme, and we're going to close, we're going to close with this quote, uh, this scheme lays another foundation of man's salvation than God hath laid. It takes away Christ out of the place of the bottom stone and puts in men's own virtue, in the room of him. They're looking at their faith as, as a virtue. It makes the whole scheme opposite. The one is a gospel scheme, the other a legal one. It is contrary to the nature and design of the gospel, which is to abase man and to ascribe all the glory of our salvation to Christ the Redeemer. Well, the sermon was roundly criticized, um, but this was the formative moment. This was the moment when things changed in the, in the congregation at Northampton. Uh, I'll just say this, and we'll close with this. Uh, just upon my suffering, says Edwards, just upon my suffering, a very open abuse for preaching this sermon, God's work wonderfully broke forth amongst us, and the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in. There were very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons savingly converted and souls now began to flock to Christ as the Savior in whose righteousness alone they hoped to be justified. Well, there's so much more. I wish we could have done it. We don't have time. We'll just pick right up here next week, Lord willing. So let's close in prayer. Father, it's an inconceivably great thing that you have done in drawing us out of the pit and out of the miry clay and setting our feet upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ our Savior. You have done it. Lord, let us never be backwards in giving you the glory and all the glory and putting our hand on our mouth and saying glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, our one triune and glorious, infinite and eternal God forevermore. Amen.